Are you a thankful person? You know, in my experience, thankfulness is elusive. You feel it, but then it's gone. In fact, we can remind ourselves of the importance of it. We can stress upon how we should be thankful. But then very quickly, we go back to grumbling. We talk about the things that we don't have, imagining all the things that we could get in the future. You know, you take a step back and you realize that, that honestly, we're set up to fail. We live in a society that is consumer-driven to the core. And so we're constantly being told by advertisers exactly what we're missing. And more than that, these are things that we need, that other people have, and other people are happy when they get them. And by comparison, we're missing out on all the fun. We're losing out on things that are vital for our lives. In fact, we're more frequently reminded of the things that we don't have than the things that we do have, and that causes us to grumble. It makes us become envious. It dampens what could be a thankful heart. Yet thankfulness plays a key role in the Christian life. I put this question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism in the front of your bulletin. It's really remarkable because it talks about the flow from your misery to then what God provided in his free grace to then this whole section in the Heidelberg Catechism on gratitude. And it even goes on to say that it is impossible for those who've experienced salvation, for those who know of God's grace, it's impossible not to produce the fruits of gratitude. Now, if that is true, then a lack of gratitude in our lives should be alarming. It should be an indication that there may be something spiritually wrong with us, a disconnect between what we are experiencing and the grace of the gospel. Why is it important? How can we become more grateful you know, thankfulness is something that goes all through the book of Colossians. But specifically in this section, it's highlighted and underlined and stressed. Let's take a closer look at it. But before we look at God's word, let's ask him to bless it. Let's pray. Our Father, you give us this word of Christ. And you tell us to let it dwell among us richly. And we pray that that might happen now by your spirit, that you might make us into this temple and that your spirit might fill this place so that your redemptive presence might renew us and strengthen us. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, Colossians chapter 3 is one of the great pictures of the Christian life in all of Scripture. And we've already looked at a lot of it. He begins this description back in chapter 5. And he describes what it is that when you come to Christ, you must put to death. And he lists off several things put to death. Sexual immorality, covetousness, anger, malice, slander, on and on. He talks about the things that we must give up. But thankfully, he doesn't end there. 
I mean, sometimes we think about the Christian life only in terms of what we need to give up. But you know, it's a great uh, understanding of holiness that goes beyond simply getting rid of sins. If that's your view of the Christian life, you've missed out. And so he doesn't end in just the things that you're giving up. From verse 12 onward, he talks about the virtues, what it means to live a Christian life, how we're supposed to act. And he describes it in this really vivid image throughout this chapter of putting on these virtues. The image is, is almost like putting on a jacket or, a, or putting on a, a garment. And as we've seen over the last few sermons, that, that really I think there's an echo back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. If you remember that story, that's where Adam and Eve sinned against God. And in their sin, they noticed, they felt naked and ashamed. And their first response was to cover themselves, to stitch together fig leaves. But if you read on, they still were naked. The shame was not covered. And it wasn't until in chapter 3 where God forgives them that we're told that he then covered them. And that covering is just a foreshadowing of what God will be doing in the full redemption in Christ. That God promises now to not leave us in our shame, but to cover us with new clothes, remaking humanity with dignity and worth and value. This is now happening, Paul says. This is now happening when Christ is in your life. You are ma being made into a new creation. And even more than that, he says what, what God is doing is creating a new humanity that appears totally different with these new clothes. And so we saw that, that these virtues act like the clothing that you're wearing, but they're not random virtues. They're not a list of things to do to make you a squeaky clean Christian so that then you can hang out with other squeaky clean Christians and feel like you all fit in in your nice little squeaky clean uh, group that you have. No, that's not the point of these virtues. In fact, what we see in them is a very reflection of the message of Christianity itself. The virtues aren't random things that nice people do. They're all things that are embodiments of the very message of Christianity. That God looked on us in our sin and he loved us that God stooped low and forgave us, even going to the point of death on a cross for our salvation. And so we are then told to live an embodiment of that with each other. We're to treat each other with humility and patience and kindness, forgiving one another. And now we get to our passage in verses 15 to 17, and Paul spells out how that's to be done. And he gives us three commands, and one for each verse. Verse 15, we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Verse 16, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then verse 17, we are to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, the interesting thing about 
each one of these commands is that they all end with what you might think is an add-on, a little extra thing that's, that's right there at the end of each of these, the encouragement to do all with thanksgiving. But the fact that he includes it on all three makes us sit up and notice what maybe this isn't just an add-on. Maybe that this is actually his point. Maybe this is something crucial about the Christian life. How do you think about thankfulness? Is thankfulness just like the icing on the cake? You know, it's good if you can do it, but really, it's not that important. Do you see it as something crucial? Now, I hesitate to call it that because all of a sudden, then you're going to turn it into a duty. Okay, now I've got to list off all the things I'm thankful for right away to make sure that I'm doing the right things. You know, thankfulness can't be conjured up in your life. You can't artificially produce it. You know, when I was a kid, uh, every Christmas, every birthday, and kids, you know what comes after that, right? Writing of thank you notes. I mean, it was, I mean, maybe I was just too selfish of a child, but I was just, I was so hated doing thank you notes after every single gift, listing off the things. I would say it's a good practice. It made me polite, it made me uh, respectful, but it didn't make me thankful. I'm not writing those notes to everybody and all of a sudden thankfulness just wells up in my heart. Oh, I feel so thankful for all that you gave me. I'm thinking about how can I finish this as quickly as possible to get this done. You can't artificially conjure up thankfulness. That's why I'm not going to stand up here and give you techniques for you to do something vital, so vital in the Christian life. Thankfulness is, is sort of like what, what C.S. Lewis describes about finding joy. If you've ever read his book, Surprised by Joy, it's really interesting. He says if you try to find joy itself, if you pursue joy on its own, you're not going to find it. That's why when he found joy uh, suddenly, it was because he, he calls it, he was surprised by it because he was pursuing something else. And joy then came along. Thankfulness, true Christian thankfulness is the same way. It comes as the fruit of something else. And so what is it? What produces thankfulness? I want to look at two things that Paul mentions here. First, the content that produces thankfulness, and then the context where thankfulness is produced. Let's look at the first thing. What is the content that produces gratitude or thankfulness? You might expect that the stuff that would produce thankfulness is all the stuff that you have. Going around like we do on Thanksgiving and just looking back at the year and, and recounting all the things that we have either accomplished or all the things that has been given to us or all the experiences we have. Sometimes we say that we count our blessings and that produces thankfulness. There have been some studies, I was reading this week, Psychology Today notes several studies that say you can actually cultivate gratitude in your life by doing uh, lists of counting your blessings, essentially. You'll get the positive emotional experience 
by proactively acknowledging. Now, I don't, uh, I don't disagree that that can't happen, but I think it'll be temporary. It'll be nearsighted. Doing it in, in the end, though, will set you up to fail. But the blessings we have today aren't guaranteed for tomorrow. And you think about it, rarely in the New Testament does it actually encourage us to count our blessings. When Jesus talks about our treasures, he says, don't think about it in worldly terms. Don't store up for yourself treasures where moth and rust can take them, or thieves can break in and steal. I think our biggest problem in really experiencing Christian thankfulness is that we're too often thankful for the wrong things. Paul Tripp makes the same point. He says, perhaps we're too thankful for the wrong things, or at least for the wrong reasons. We're too thankful for our success. We step back and thank God that we passed a test or, or that we made some promotion at work or we, we did something well. We say, thank you, God, for allowing me to do such great things. We're too thankful for the control we have over our circumstance. Thank you, God, for allowing me to orchestrate things so that I can have a world that's safe and where I can accomplish what I want because it's predictable. We're too thankful for our comfort and our pleasure. Thank you, God, that you removed all the obstacles so now I can achieve what I want to achieve. We're too thankful for material things. We're thankful for our car, for our nice home, for living in a, a good neighborhood. And don't get me wrong, it's good to thank God for the things you have. Please continue to do so. But too often, we thank him for what we have in ways that are dangerous. I say too thankful for these things for a couple of reasons. One, because all of those things I just mentioned are tenuous at best. God never guarantees these things. He never calls them the, the keys to your godliness. He never says that they're essential for you to have for the Christian life, and because of that, they're never promised for tomorrow. What will happen to your gratitude if they're gone the next day? What will happen? Is your gratitude going to leave? Perhaps you're going to shift to column B and those other things that you have. Okay, God, I was thankful for these things. You took them away. Now I'm thankful for this stuff over here. What happens when they're gone? Do we go down the list and start saying, well, God, as so many times we do, at least I'm not as bad as that person over there. I'm thankful, God, that you've made me a little bit better than that person over there. You really think about it. That's a horrible thing to pray. Thank you, God, that you made my situation better than that person. No. Secondly, we're too thankful for these things because they often lead us in the wrong direction in the Christian life. You think about it, none of these things, success, pleasure, possessions, 
None of them function to draw you closer to God. In fact, many of them are the very thing that will supplant God in your life. God doesn't bless you so that you can replace him as someone who's independent, self-sufficient, and achieving everything you wanted in life. No, we can become too thankful for those things and we can make life all about those things. But in the end, that's not where thankfulness will come from. That's not the source. What is the content that produces thankfulness? Well, he tells us in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which you were called and be thankful. In the context, as we've seen, peace of Christ is clear. He's not talking about some peace that is uh, tranquility or serenity, as if it's, we live a, a nice peaceful life with it. No, he's talking about the peace that comes at the end of warfare. It's the peace that comes to end hostility. He describes it in Romans 5.1. Since then we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. And what he means there and what he means here is the same thing. That if we're truly to understand what sin is, sin is our willful rebellion against God. It's an act of war that we have. You see, sin is not simply bad deeds. It's not doing the wrong thing. Sin is us. Rejecting God's authority. And whether we acknowledge it or not, it's a declaration of war against God in which we stand condemned. And God looks on us. And instead of condemning us, squashing us, casting us away, he declares peace. He ends the hostility. He forgives us. Even more so, he reconciles us to himself. Now, if we can understand that, then there's a sort of paradox here. That thanksgiving comes not in counting your blessings, but thanksgiving comes in counting your sins. Counting the depth from which you have fallen from God. I mean, this is so surprising. I mean, my natural instinct is to block out my sins. When I'm confronted with them, I want to say, okay, no use crying over spilled milk. Let's move on. Let's try better the next time. Let's push that stuff under the carpet and not talk about it, and let's try to do better. But that's not going to produce thanksgiving, and it's also going to lead us away from the gospel. Focusing on my failures feels like the very thing that's going to lead me to, to depression, to lead me to, to low self-esteem, to lead me actually to grumbling. But you know, the opposite is really true. A self-righteous person is the one who's not going to be able to understand grace. They're the one that's going to offer a weak thanksgiving. The person who has been forgiven much 
we'll start to see with clear eyes the, the real scope of the salvation that God has accomplished. We see this in Luke 18 as Jesus tells that story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the tax collector stands before God knowing his sin, and he's there beating his breast, crying out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. It's very interesting that the Pharisee is standing next to him, calm and collected. And the Pharisee, in his self-righteousness, actually is thanking God. But he's almost counting his blessings. Listen to what he says. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I have. There's no joy. There's no thankfulness. There's only smugness. If he's thanking God, it's simply that God put him in position for him to live a self-righteous and independent life. Now, he was experiencing entitlement. I can think of no greater enemy to thankfulness than entitlement. That feeling like you have accomplished it and you are owed. That you did your part, now God should do his part and fulfill what he's promised. I remember my uh, last semester in college. Where's Noah? Noah, we're doing a graduation celebration later in the service. We're gonna recognize a senior who's graduating. My last semester, I had senioritis bad. I'm sure you, you've not experienced that at all. I took what was the biggest joke class I could find. It was a film class. It was an easy A. You watch movies, you write a paper. I did the paper so early in, in the, the semester, felt so good about it, was on my way to graduating. And then one night, I woke up out of a deep sleep, realizing I was way past the due date, and I never turned in the paper. I leaped out of bed, went to the computer, emailed my professor, begging like I've never begged for anything in my entire life before. And I was waiting for his response. I felt like I was dead. There's my graduation, there's my degree, there's everything, my parents are gonna disown me, I'm gonna be out on the streets. Everything flooded my mind, why? Because I knew that I stood condemned. I had no excuse. I, I had no justification. I was in the wrong and the professor could squash me. I was guilty and he had every right to flunk me. And then, boop, the email showed up and he was gonna accept my paper and I was gonna pass. And I don't think I've ever expressed gratitude in such an uh, expressive way in my entire life. I was probably embarrassing skipping across campus that day. I was thankful because I thought I was dead, but now I was alive. Now, in a far less silly way, that's exactly what Paul is saying about the Christian life. You were dead, do you realize it? 
You were dead. But now God has made you alive. How do you cultivate gratitude? Well, begin by taking your sins seriously. Search out your heart. Examine your motives. Get down to it. Stop justifying yourself. Stop giving excuses. Really get to the point where you own your sin. And if you get to that point where you know your condemnation before a holy and righteous God, and then you hear the word of the cross, you are forgiven. You're justified. You get to the point where you know there was nothing you could possibly do to earn it back. Nothing you, you had the power to repay. Then you see the grace of God and your heart is going to sing. As you explore your sin, you're going to say, oh, I thought I was a good person, but God didn't just save a good person. He saved me. And oh, he saw this. Oh, that's how much he loved me. Oh, this sin. Oh, that's how much he loved me. I thought it was here. But now I realize I was here. And as you continue to discover your sin, you're going to discover the greatness, the height and the depth and the width and the length of God's love. And it's going to make your heart burst with joy. That is the content. That's the content that produces thanksgiving. It's the, the grace of the gospel, the peace that Christ has brought. Secondly, Paul here talks about the context in which th that produces thankfulness. Where does thankfulness occur? Well, it should be clear in this section, although sometimes we miss it, that the context is in the church. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We read that passage so much individualistically. But Colossians 3 says thankfulness occurs in the context of the people of God. That's where the peace of Christ is given and received. Then the next verse, another one that we tend to read individualistically. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And frankly, I read that and say, oh good, I, I want to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly. So let me go home and read my Bible. Let me have my private time with God and I'm going to grow. But that's not the end of the verse. It goes on to say, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. One another. There's two things going on in this community that that verse points out. This community is teaching and singing. And both of them are being done with thanksgiving. It's important to see how thanksgiving relates to each of these things. And first, look at the teaching. Teaching is val a valuable part of any church. I am grateful that CPC is known as a teaching church. That's really important. Specifically because so many people, their experience of church is a place where you go 
and you check your brain at the door. That it's simply about faith that in some way is against your, your intellect. That you can have a good experience, but we fear that if you think too much about it, it actually might expose some weakness in Christianity that would, would undercut it. Well, no, you're not going to experience that here. If you've come here with doubts, if there are lots of questions that feel like Christianity is incompatible with, uh, with an intelligent, uh, modern person, stick around. Ask those questions. Don't run away and, and believe that it's, it's uh, not going to happen. What you're going to find here asking those questions is something that we will never shy away from. There's a truth about Christianity that is, can stand up to any accusation. But you see here, Paul's not simply talking about education. The community of God is admonishing each other with the word of Christ. Admonition is like a, a warning or a rebuke. It's, it's, it's made with a purpose to guide you. What we see here is people not filling their heads but being guided with each other on the path of truth, helping each other steer away from error. And notice the responsibility that we have to each other. It isn't enough for me to sit back and learn passively. It's not good enough for me to just listen to a podcast or to, to grow intellectually. That's not Christian growth. We have a responsibility to one another. I need you to bring the word of God into my life. You need me to bring it into your life. We can't apply it on our own. That's the vision that Paul gives for the Christian life in chapter 3. It's not us in isolation, individually growing, but us together, encouraging and supporting and admonishing each other. And that's where Thanksgiving fits in. You see, we can't just learn. We can't just treat Christianity like a school subject. You know, we offer a lot of classes here that you can learn a lot, but it would be a mistake to think that you're actually growing in the faith by becoming an expert in theology or an expert in Bible interpretation or know everything about church history. No. Those things would puff you up. The goal is to make you more and more like Christ. How do you know that the teaching actually achieves its purpose? Thankfulness. Thankfulness is the sign. Not thankful for the teacher and what he's taught, but thankfulness to Christ and what you now have discovered. And if it's not there, there's questions of whether or not you actually have received it. That's why Paul's sentence can flow very easily from teaching to singing. Did you see that? He's teaching, admonishing, and singing with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. I mean, the church stands pretty unique in that. Where else in the world, in any other experience, do you have teaching and singing go together? I mean, I don't sing in public anywhere else. Think about it. I mean, maybe a sporting event. Or I'm singing the national anthem, but that's about it. My kids will tell you, the only time they ever catch me singing is when I'm doing the dishes. 
when I know nobody else is looking at me or, or listening to me. I remember the first time I ever went to a Christian group. I wasn't a Christian at the time. I showed up at this group, which I thought was going to study the Bible. I thought it was going to be a, a time where somebody was teaching and I could just hang out in the, the shadows. And there they were singing. What is going on here? It was the strangest thing. And then when they started clapping their hands, I almost got up and left. But the more I grew and understood what Christianity was, yeah, singing has to go with teaching. It must. You know, it's stunning when we think about this. In, uh, in Ephesians 5, there's a description of what it means to be spirit-filled. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Some of you know that passage. What's the first thing that's mentioned in Ephesians 5 that's a mark of being filled with the Spirit? He says, addressing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always. That's remarkable. A mark of the Spirit is you singing. It doesn't say you have to sing it well. It doesn't sing, say you have to be in tune. But there's something about singing that receives the message. You know, we've looked back on this past year, and we've noted that we have had a lot of members joining this year. And a lot of professions of faith, and a lot of our children who've grown up in the church have professed their faith. And I, just thinking about it, there's, there's something about those membership interviews that I would love, instead of hearing all the things you know about Christianity, to actually hear you sing. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Nobody would ever join the church if we ever did that. Really singing in front of the pastor? Oh, but I would learn more, volumes more about your faith than if you were to describe all the facts you learned. If I could hear you sing your faith. It's a sign that we've received it. The songs teaching us, the songs expressing what the, the grace and the gospel is in our lives. Singing is, is a mark of getting it. But the final thing he says here is really the climax of the whole chapter. It's the the culmination of the Christian life. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. More needs to be said about this than we can say here, but the point is simple. That everything in that old life, the things that you're supposed to get rid of, the one thing that we don't think about getting rid of is our name. But here he's saying, God is making you a new person. All that old life has died. And now the name that you get to bear for the rest of your life in everything that you do, the name is Jesus. Oh, man, if we could only take a glimpse of the privilege and the blessing it is to be able to bear that name to bear that name, even though everything we did should bear the name sinner. Everything that we do bear the name someone who's fallen short and deserves condemnation. God says, no, you get to bear the name of the one who's holy 
You get to be his emissaries. You get to stand for him. That's your new identity. Far more dignity and worth has been bestowed on you. If we could just look up and see it. Are you stuck in the pattern of grumbling? Is it too easy to look to all the things that you don't have? Is it too easy to give in to that pressure that says, I'm not satisfied. I need more. I need a better relationship. Or maybe I need a relationship. I need a better job. I need a bigger house. I need more stuff. Maybe I need more time. I need to be in a position where I can do the things I want to do. We look at thankfulness and think of it as a chore. How do we conjure it up? If you're in that place when it just feels like thankfulness is so distant, I want to invite you to this table. This table, called the Eucharist, which is Greek for thanksgiving. It's a meal that is supposed to invite us to consider the real source of thanksgiving. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul explains and describes this meal for, for Christians, for us in the church to always turn to when we have this meal. And he starts out by saying that as you approach this meal, examine yourself. Now, what are we to do when we examine ourselves? We're certainly not to count our blessings. And we're certainly not going to examine ourselves and find ourselves worthy on our own. As if we've merited our ability to come to this table. Now, if you're honestly evaluating yourself, it's, it's not going to go well. You're going to start to see all the sins that you've done in the week. As you examine yourself, you're going to start to see your unworthiness. You're almost going to get to the point where you're going to feel like you need to get up and leave because you can't come to this table. And when you get to that point, I want your eyes to look up and to see a holy God inviting you to eat with him, inviting you to come and receive the grace he has for you, to understand that with all of your baggage, he now has accepted you. He now is giving you the name Jesus. And in that name, you have all the privileges and all the rights of the Son of God. That's you. And if you're going to eat that meal with that in mind, well, then you will know the true words of the Heidelberg Catechism, that when you receive this grace, you can't receive it without an overflow of the fruits of gratitude in your life. Let's prepare now to come to it.